Ralston is a professor in the departments of Women's Studies and Political Studies at Mount St. Vincent University in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Her most recent book, Slut-Shaming, Whorephobia, and the Unfinished Sexual Revolution, is a remarkably self-reflexive and rigorous study of contemporary sexual politics in a supposedly permissive era. We talk about the limits of white feminism and carceral thinking when it comes to the prevalent approaches to reckoning with the reality of sex work. Meredith speaks to her profound sense that a pleasure gap still exists, where the disparate and binaristic socializations of men and women position people very differently in terms of access to pleasure. I ask her about the place of biology in sex and whether culture and context and power are always complexly at play in determining even our sense of the biology of sex, let alone the agency we have in pleasure. Ralston's research is largely focused on sex work and sex tourism globally, but she's also looked at unhoused women and sex work in Canada. She's an award-winning filmmaker, and her film Hope in Heaven received a very positive reception when it was broadcast on CBC. She also wrote and directed two documentaries with the National Film Board of Canada on women in politics. Here, though, we talk about her shifting relationship to the documentary work that she's produced, especially when it comes to the question of sex work. This is where the critical self-reflection comes in, as Ralston's extremely aware of her own tendency to adopt certain conservative relationships to sex and sex work. It's a complex topic that warrants an engaged conversation that doesn't conveniently skip over the impasses. I would definitely recommend her new book. It thinks through the ripple effects of the Me Too movement, which is differently relevant in the face of the misogynistic vilification of Amber Heard that we're seeing right now, and the crackdown on reproductive rights in the United States, and the possibility of an attendant crackdown here in Canada. It talks about the discourse of rape culture, and most intensely, it advocates for sexual equality and justice, and the end of the sexual double standard that continues to contribute to the vulnerability and widespread dehumanization of trans women, women of color, and women in general who are open about sexual desire. We end the conversation by talking about a broader end to the policing of sex, which cannot arrive soon enough. The book is like, it's a, it, it does a lot of things, but one of the things that it does try and do is kind of narrate your own personal transformation in relationship to the, you know, filmmaking work that you've done. Like, you know, I've recorded a bunch of interviews with filmmakers and they always emphasize the sort of ethics and responsibilities of connecting with community members. And like, that's especially apparent in, in this case, like the, the work that you've done, it's extremely sort of, you know, it's like sensitive subject matter. People's lives are in many cases at stake. Um, and in the book, you talk about like how your films had been, or, or one film in particular had been used by Canada border services, the RCMP and anti-trafficking groups to educate people about the horrors of sex trafficking. Um, so in some ways, like you're also narrating a certain kind of appropriation almost by the state, uh, which is extremely, and, and so like beyond that, like, uh, I'd, I'd love for you to kind of speak to that experience, that kind of reckoning almost internally, but also like the choices that you had to make, uh, when you were editing your work, uh, which you talk about in the book a little bit and how those editing decisions were also sort of ethical decisions. Like mm -hmm. you chose to take out particular interviews, you kind of abandoned at a certain point 
this sense that you could just adopt a position of neutrality, I think, and realize that you were almost becoming, as you put it, a stand-in for the anti-prostitution side. Um, how did making these films and then writing this book um, sort of help you engage with your own politics mm-hmm. around sex? Yeah, absolutely. Those are great questions. And um, obviously you've read the book. <laughs> mm-hmm. that's, that's awesome. Um, yeah, it's I it, when you say that the the, the first film, uh, which was called Hope in Heaven, and it was about bar girls in the Philippines, and then the C, it was broadcast on CBC, and they renamed it Selling Sex in Heaven, you know, because it's a sexier topic. Um, mm. I had no problem at that point having it being used by the state. So this is how much it's changed in my view. Right. It's changed. I spent a lot of time in the Philippines and. The situation there is uh, pretty horrific for some sex workers, not all. Um, and so when I did that, when I did the project and I did the film, at that point, I could not see the good of prostitution or sex work, particularly when the, the sex workers I was, was dealing with, some of them were actually young girls, right? So they were not, they were not adults. They were not consenting adults doing something um, for either extra money or for their own sense of empowerment. This what they were doing it for survival. And I'd also dealt with a set survival sex workers here in Halifax. So again, if you look at the, the group of people that I had been researching in the past, up until about 2009, they were all, they, their agency, I think you could say would have been questioned. And so, and because I didn't make any connections between uh, women's empowerment or sexual empowerment, then I would have agreed that we didn't have it at that time in uh, 2009. But the, um, the, the Nordic model where the selling of sex is decriminalized, but the buying of sex is criminalized, that mm-hmm. kind of asymmetrical model, I probably would have, I would have agreed with that. Oh, yeah, let's get the bad men. Let's get the men who are who are buying women, and and again, I understand why I thought that for sure. Uh, I even wrote a book that um, was not about that in the Philippines, so that's that that's one context. And then after that, the film and the book came out. So this would have been, yeah, it would have been two thousand nine because then I got the funding in two thousand ten. Anyway, um, after. So it was being used a lot. It was on CBC. I had Kiefer Sutherland. So it got a lot of play. It was even on Entertainment Tonight Canada. Um, Mm. And so then, and I was working with Stepping Stone here in Halifax at the time as well, which is an advocacy advocacy group for sex workers. And they take a fairly neutral point of view in the sense that, um, you know, if they are dealing with survival sex workers, they try to do whatever they can to help them in whatever way that is. They're not taking a position that we have to get the women or men or trans people out of the out of um, sex work. They're not trying to abolish sex work. So they, but they're coming at it from the point of view of how do we how do we help people in where they are right now. Um, and so they had a they had a group of people come to talk about sex work um, as not a survival sex work issue, but of, of people who have chosen to do it. And um, so I ended up speaking to the main person who happened to be somebody who's an ex-sex worker from New York. And she invited me down to do a workshop with them. 
And I said, oh, okay, like a workshop on documentary filmmaking because they were, um, I don't think they, the organization exists anymore, but it was essentially to try to, to promote sex work activism, actually. Um, and so anyway, I went down and I met these wonderful people. They were all cisgender at that point. There was nine of them. They were all cisgender women from all over the U.S. And they all had different experiences in sex work. Some of them were escorts. Some of them were uh, dancers. Some of them was, uh, worked in pornography. So there was a whole bunch of you know different ways in which they were doing sex work. But all of them, to a person, uh, had were doing it of their own free will and actually wanted to keep doing it. And they wanted to decriminalize sex work, not just for themselves, but also for their, their male or couple clients that they wanted to um, legalize it. And as you probably know, it's even more difficult to imagine that in the United States. It's very, very conservative. And they don't even have the option of... Um, of having what we used to have, which was the solicitation was illegal. Uh, in most states, prostitution itself is illegal. So, um, and so that they, I, they gave me a number of horrible stories about entrapment and the police actually, you know, having sex with them. And then once the money was exchanged, arresting them. So I, I think I talk about that. I know I talk about that in the book. So for a lot of the women, they'd all had these awful stories of uh, police harassment, community harassment, etc. So, but anyway, that's, uh, you know, that was 2010. I start the film. I start filming all lots of different people. So it, because at that point, as you said, I was trying to take a kind of neutral position. I like that wording. I would say, oh, well, this is the pro-prostitution side. This is the anti-prostitution side. And I will just, you know, skirt down the middle and not have to <laughs> tell anybody what I really think. Um, but <laughs> as I got to know the women, the sex workers who were doing it um, for either financial reasons or lifestyle reasons, I was really struck by how, how much better they came across, I guess is the only way I could put it. The uh, I, I talked to a lot of uh, anti-prostitution activists. Some of the you know the big ones, the big I've never actually identified except in the film, but uh, the big one in the United States, a couple of big ones in Canada, and they they take an uncompromising position on sex work. I guess is the only way to put it that this is in every circumstance it is exploitation. Even if the woman herself believes, even if the woman is making four thousand dollars a night, irrelevant. They are being exploited. And the more I listened to them and, I, you know, I would say, oh, well, okay, well, what about, you know, what about this situation or what about that situation? And the response would be something like they don't know their own interests. They are suffering from false consciousness somehow. Or um, what, was it? what was my favorite? There was something about, you know, they're just pawns of the patriarchy or something. And I went, hmm, okay, well, you know, I'm meeting more and more of them. There were four main people in the film, but I met a lot of other women um, and men. I met some uh, male sex workers and male sex workers who were actually male escorts for women, not just men, because that's another stereotype that it's only men that go to sex workers. Um, and so anyways, as, as I met them and, and granted, I was going to um, like sex worker conferences. So obviously that's going to be 
that position and they wanted the decriminalization of, of sex work. Um, but basically, as I met them, the, the cognitive dissonance, is, is that the word? The phrase would just be, oh, wow. Um, it was kind of breaking down my own beliefs about these women being exploited by the bad men. And the more, so then I met some of their clients, I got a sense that, you know, I didn't put this in the book, but I, at one point I had it in there where my widowed father, you know, my, uh, my 81 year old widowed father, who's not been able to, who is not really not interested, but if he was, you know, um, what about people who are widowed? What about, um, friends of mine who are older and in their 60s and have, are really having struggling finding relationships. Um, you know, what is so bad about the exchange of sex for money? And so, so as you can see in the book, that's what I'm attempting to do. I did it a little bit in the film where I, I sectioned it off really. Okay, so what are the arguments against sex work? It's the exploitation issue. It's violence against women. So I kind of deal with that. How is it and how is it not? And is it the same for all? Then the money issue. Is the exchange in a capitalist society, is the exchange of money meaning that they lack choice, that they cannot, they cannot choose that, that just the exchange of money itself um, means that they lack choice. And I think I give all these examples of, well, you know, like I wouldn't, I probably wouldn't teach if I wasn't paid, but I do everything else. So does that mean, you know, I lack choice? Like it just, it, it seemed to be a very, um, <laughs> a one-sided argument basically. Um, and then I got to the sex part. Um, and I was like, Hmm, what is, where are my own assumptions going with that, that somehow, oh, we can exchange money for this labor and we can exchange money for this, but, but sex, ooh, no. And I, and I realized like, wow, I'm, a, I'm actually taking at that point, one of the, the main people with the anti-prostitution side saying, oh, no, no, sex, sexuality is something that cannot be um, commercialized. That is just, that's a personal, um, it's a personal thing. And I, I never really thought about it that much, but I thought, hmm, wow, actually, obviously I have that in my mind. So whether it's um, about a lack of, of my own experience in terms of hookup culture or, you know, sex without a relationship, I just realized that, wow, I am really conservative. <laughs> now, other people who know me would be like, oh yeah, okay, honey, you, you know, you're just coming to that now. But it's just, it was such an eye-opening thing to meet people who were very, very liberal uh, sexually and, and and just kind of blew my mind. In every interview, they were saying something that I was, uh, wow, okay. Whether it was in the kink dimension or the polyamory or I just realized like, wow, I am, as I say in the film, <laughs> I'm from Fredericton, New Brunswick. I'm, I'm obviously very conservative. So that took a long time. I mean, so I do all the interviews in a couple of years, 2010, 2012. And then it took me years to edit it because I just, as I say, could not accept what they were telling me. And then the problem of the editing where, uh, so at, at you know, one point, the rough cut was probably almost two hours long and I had kept in the anti-prostitution people and the sex workers. But, you know, you'd look at it and go, wow, are you... Then I'd say to myself, am I making fun? I'm not, I don't mean to make fun of them, but 
literally putting in a view that all sex workers violence against women next to somebody who's saying, you know, they specialize in disabled people and they like doing it. Um, they keep coming back to sex work for lifestyle reasons. Anyway, it was just, it was just too much for my little brain. So, um, so I basically then had to just kind of admit that this is not going to work really as a, a neutral with, and I would never intended to be in it. I was not supposed to be in the film. Um, and I said, that's the only way I can really do this is to, I would be the eyes, uh, I'd be the anti-prostitution one, the skeptic, and then interviewing people and, and then show within the film of me coming to terms with that. And then like the big reveal at the end where I'm kind of saying, wow, <laughs> I can't believe I'm a women's studies professor. And that connection between women's bodily autonomy and their choice of what to do with their body, let alone the good girl, bad girl, and sexual double standard issue. Mm -hmm. I don't see, I didn't see that connection. I just saw women, I saw sex workers as being victims. And if you right. just see them as being victims, then you cannot see, you can't see that connection. And the more we stigmatize them, the more we're actually stigmatizing women who are like them and in other ways free with their sexuality. So. Yeah, I mean, there's so much there. Um, I definitely want to come back to the politics of policing sex work. Um, you know, the the fact that you mentioned the United States context and the kind of contradictions there, the fact that there are specific counties where it's legal, like in Nevada, um, to do sex work, but that it's still highly exploitative. Yeah. The fact that it's not specifically illegal in many states for police to have sex with sex workers during a sting operation, yep. like, you know, just like exposing these things is so crucial because it's like in actually engaging with it, you, the book makes clear that it's like, you can't know until you begin to engage. The stereotypes are the wool that's being pulled over our eyes. Like there's this one line in the book where you say, until you meet someone who makes you see things differently, it's easy to fall into stereotypes about clients and providers. Um, and the book, you know, reinforces the fact that sex work is work and sex workers are people, right? Like this is, this is one of the things that I took away. Um, but also, I mean, like in, in sort of humanizing and, and providing nuance, the goal too is to try and give um, an intersectional framing, uh, right? So you, you, you point out in the book that, you know, the, escort, the escorts you met um, hadn't encountered violence from clients because they were not street-based workers, like just thinking about the context is so crucial. You say there's more violence against outdoor workers because they're more marginalized generally. Mm -hmm. And this is apparently one of the problems with the so-called Nordic model is that if you're working on the street um, and the people who are buying sex are, are, are vulnerable to arrest, they are more likely to just kind of, you know, uh, hurriedly rush you into the car. You know, they're jumpier. Right. So th there's no negotiation before the actual like exchange takes place. And that makes it inherently more dangerous. Right. So it's mm -hmm. it's like the book is in some ways about harm reduction um, and trying to understand how specific policy decisions actually reproduce the harm. Right. Like you talk, for example, about um, the place of indigenous women in this discussion, how it's often, you know, a marginalized thing. And you say like, uh, many early settler communities located in the country's western provinces saw indigenous women as causes of vice 
and threats to morality, or you're quoting someone on this point, um, uh, as causes of vice and threats to morality and restricted them from free act free access, um, you know, to, uh, um, to rights basically. Right. Um, and so, I mean, like the question becomes, I guess for me, like, how do you think about, uh, like after having written the book, um, the ways in which like certain violence against certain people is re- like registers as, as real violence, as outrageous violence, as, as, you know, morally scandalous and, and horrifying violence while, while clearly like violence against certain people, um, just doesn't. I mean, like, did it did it give you an opportunity to sort of like, as it were, like theorize that ethical conundrum about? And I hesitate to even use the term uh, rapeability. Right? This is a term that comes up a couple couple of times in the book. Um, like, sex workers become seen as rapeable. You know, there there's this idea that uh, certain populations, enslaved, racialized, and poor women in particular, are considered rapeable. And I guess, like, how do you how did you kind of come to terms with having to actually engage in a way in that rhetoric of rapeability, which it's, is so difficult to even bring up? Absolutely. And I guess now I see it everywhere. I mean, I mean, a lot of social scientists or journalists say that they're trying to humanize whatever the subject has to be is, whether it's uh, someone who's mentally ill, whether it's drug addiction, sex work, whatever. Um, and, and I see it all the time now and it's like, why do we have to do that? Why do, why does a human being have to be humanized right. and that we can't just accept that, uh, you know, either by the grace of God, go I, that that could be me. And I guess suppose that's part of the humanization of it too. But why do we then say that somebody who is a sex worker or someone who is drug using loses their respect. It, it, they lose the, the right to be respected. And I saw that coming down to that, that good girl, bad girl distinction, which again, it took me a long time to realize. I mean, obviously I was a good girl. I mean, there's no question about that. But, um, but this, I mean, there's a reason. That's why I called it good girl privilege. You have the, you've got the bad girl stigma on the one hand, which is so detrimental to most women and this good girl privilege, which is very racialized, classed. I mean, there's no question about it in certain examples that I give there that it's much easier for a white middle-class woman to, to have that good girl privilege than it is for a woman of color or somebody who is um, of working class or, and definitely a sex worker. Um, and so that's what I wanted to think about. Why is that? Why, what happens when this bad girl loses, when you lose your good girl privilege, essentially, which is, again, I saw something like that on, on Twitter, a former sex worker who was now an attorney, I believe. And she said, when she became a sex worker, she lost her good girl privilege. And I was like, what does that mean? And I think there, it, it is going back to the policing issue. Women police themselves probably more than, you know, any uh, man could ever understand. So it doesn't, the, the state doesn't have to do it really. The, you know, the, it may come about because of schools and parents and the society, but women police themselves. And I think they do because they see what happens. They see how the bad girls are treated. They see that it somehow gives men and authority figures the license to treat them badly because of those kinds of choices. They see the difference. Women see that 
um, you know, how that sexual double standard, even if they're not articulating it, works, that it's okay for men to have as many sexual partners as they want, and they're, and they're kind of celebrated for that. But women, oh, yo, yo, um, even within and within their friend cohort, they just know it's not acceptable and it has to be hidden or there could be severe consequences. So then if you take it from normal socialization of, of women to then women who are sex workers, either through choice or through circumstances, then they are treated horribly. So I've just done another um, research project and the the stories of the the abuse of, from healthcare workers. So it just, again, it goes to the stigma. So here's a sex worker who come, goes to the, the hospital, to emergency, and she's been horribly, you know, gang raped, and there is l- no sympathy, nothing. It is, she's difficult, she's just a sex worker. Um, it was a horrible, I can't even, I don't even want to say what it was that it happened. They stitched her up, off they go. They didn't call the police. They didn't ask what had happened. Um, they didn't investigate any further. It was just like she was totally disposable. And then I heard horrible stories of, of the women who will not go back to emergency, don't go to doctors until they're you know near death because they know they're going to be treated so horribly. And these are, I mean, uh, presumably healthcare workers, nurses and doctors, they're nice people. <laughs> they, they go into it to help people. And yet, they can be they can dehumanize somebody so much because they're a sex worker or they're drug abusing, drug seeking. They think that they're drug seeking while they're there, you know, that kind of thing. So mm-hmm. wow. It's upsetting. It's it's yeah. upsetting. It shows the limits of of care in some sense, right? Like this is something that um Catherine Angel talks about in her book, Tomorrow Will Sex Will Be Good Again, um, is the fact that and, and I kind of want to use this maybe as a way of uh, thinking about the way your book talks about sort of biology, the fact of biology, um, you know, as, as kind of a sticky subject. Mm-hmm. Um, but in Angel's book, you know, she talks about how context is everything, right? Um, that, you know, the, the social context in which sex happens determines, as she puts it, whether desire feels more spontaneous or responsive. Um, she says that ultimately it's about care. It's about like, you know, the, and, and this is, I guess, the, the kind of way that I wanted to kind of transition. She says sex is often understood as a drive, uh, but and, and it, she says it may sometimes feel like a drive, uh, but it is arousal in a context conducive to desire. And that that context for it to actually produce good sex mm-hmm. needs to be uh, defined by care, uh, by people caring for us. And so I think the connections between institutions like the police, uh, often the hospital system, that show a lack of care to those that might sell sex, it's not un, it's not disconnected from this fact of the kind of more intimate spaces of caring sexuality. Um, you know, and, and, and to your point, like it's entirely about how we're socialized, you know, um, the ways in which we police ourselves out of enjoying sex, out of... Um, you know, regarding the other's pleasure as important um, and all of those things, right? Like, um, but yeah, to, I guess to ask you this question about the way your book understands biology, like there's one particular, you know, admission in the book where you talk about how like biology is, quote, an area that most feminists don't want to touch because if something is biological, then it's assumed to be natural and therefore immutable. 
Um, and this is not, you admit, like this has not been a good thing for women. It's led in many ways to the kind of reproduction of conditions of domination for women. Um, but, you know, the, you still kind of, I think, adhere to this idea that there is a biological difference when it comes to sort of drive, desire for sex um, and, and attachment to pleasure or, or, and so on. And like, it is distinct in certain ways from uh, what Angel is saying in her book. Like, so, you know, and, and for the most part, you're quoting others on the fact that sex is a human need, a basic human need. Um, you know, like it's, it's just interesting to think about the ways in which uh, there's like a still like a fundamental divide, it seems, within feminist theory around the question of whether sex is primarily reducible to biology or or primarily something that is like culturally defined and entirely about context. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, I don't know, even as Angel is saying um, that it's fundamentally a question of culture and so on and socialization, she's also, you know, invoking the DSM and talking about how the DSM says, you know, men have desire while women have motivations for sex, um, that we often render men's reasons, their incentives for sex invisible and just reduce it to a drive when it comes to guys, you know? Um, and, and, you know, the fact that she quotes statistics, like when women speak of good sex, they tend to mean an absence of pain while men mean reaching orgasm, right? So, I mean, how do you kind of disentangle biology and culture? You kind of end in a messy place when it comes to like the claims of the book. Um, you know, have you gotten any insight around that? Or do you, f- you feel like we have to kind of stay in that indeterminate place when it comes oh, to this divide? That is a great question. Um, I guess in the end, I think that I came down on the side of um, Catherine Rowland, who wrote The Pleasure Gap, that mm-hmm. even though I did talk about biology, because the, the sex workers <laughs> did a lot of that, they really did believe that the men, um, men have a higher sex drive than, than women. I mean, the, this ex, the escorts believed that. Mm-hmm. And they didn't think that was a bad thing. It wasn't a judgmental thing. It was just men know the goods of sex and they want to, it's a, and it's a huge driver for them. And that's what keeps them in business. Right. Roland, on the other hand, is saying eh, it's mostly cultural. In that, you know, it is that socialized. We're socialized to be to be good girls. We're taught to police ourselves. We we pay a huge price for the promiscuity. So that sort of that good girl bad girl thing. And the mm-hmm. other thing I thought was really interesting in terms of the physical, um, which is that girls are not they're not encouraged to explore their bodies. Now I'm making a huge generalization there, but. Um, where it's, again, that's the net for a, a boy and learning to, well, he doesn't need to learn to masturbate. Um, you know, it happens more organically, let's say, for most boys. So I was intrigued by that, you know, because I had never thought. Because, of course, I was one of those who were just saying, there's no biological differences. We're all the same. It's all cultural. And that was another place where, although in a reverse way, I was a little more open to that. Uh huh. Well, you know, maybe I know women who have no interest in sex, who've never had an orgasm, uh, never met a man um, who says the same kind of thing. Now, maybe there are asexual men out there. Maybe there are. I mean, obviously there must be. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm just I, I'm, I'm open to that, even though it opens me up to a lot of criticism about the biological, for sure. Yeah, and and I'm definitely not like criticizing the book. I think it like stays in that position of a kind of productive indeterminacy. Um, you say like, we may never solve the issue of biology versus nurture. Um, but you know, part of the problem is that women 
often don't have good experiences with sex and therefore are not as interested in it. Um, and yeah, I mean, the, the quote or the, the, the statistic that Angel quotes is that, you know, 90% of men report having orgasms, 50 to 70% uh, report, you know, having orgasms uh, among women. You know, the, I, I immediately think too of uh, Taylor Tomlinson's wonderful Netflix comedy special, uh, Quarter Life Crisis, where she talks about like growing up and being in high school and, and growing up Christian, very religious and, and, you know, completely avoiding sex for moral reasons and talking to her girlfriends that are having intercourse and like none of them are having orgasms while Tomlinson is on the sly, uh, like having various forms of, of, you know, sexual experiences that are not, you know, vaginal intercourse. And she is having orgasm after orgasm after orgasm. Right. And she's like, she, she, this is, you know, something she jokes about. And I certainly want to come back to the question of popular culture, visual culture, and its specific kind of impact on the discourse around sexual liberation. Um, but for now, I guess, like the point for me is like what I take away to some extent from your your book and what you were just saying is that it's like what Laura Mulvey says about scopophilia, like men act in film and women appear, right? Like pop culture reinforces that specific dichotomy. And it's something you talk about too, in, in terms of um, the space of the the clitoris, like the function uh, and the kind of the, like the gap when it comes to just knowledge about uh, the function of the clitoris, like historically, like you say, mm-hmm. if girls are ashamed of their bodies and don't know the pleasures of the clitoris, then they're, uh, then they're oblivious to the pleasures of sex itself. And the sex act becomes a performance for the boy's pleasure. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I think like that's to that point of kind of the, the function of visual culture, scopophilia, um, and just like the value too of having an open conversation about the, uh, about what our bodies can do. You know, this is what certainly came out of my, you know, I, I attended this, um, this panel that you, you helped kind of moderate uh, yesterday for International Women's Day. And that was one of the things that they talked about, right? This, this um, basic and pernicious assumption that boys will be boys, right? This assumption of a certain kind of male socialization as fixed and immutable um, and how that needs to obviously change, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the panelists was specifically talking about how that gets reinforced by algorithms, by dating apps, mm-hmm. um, that see like dick pics as perfectly appropriate and, you know, uh, uh, an, an, a kind of angry feminist response to dick pics as bannable as something that you should be banned from the platform for, yeah. you know, is that just about that sexual double standard, do you think? And, and what, did, what did you take away from that panel, incidentally? Mm. Oh, I thought it was wonderful. And I actually heard mm. that um, I was on CBC Main Street the day before and uh, a high school teacher must have heard me and brought her whole grade 12 class. She's, ta- she's teaching a class in contemporary, what she called contemporary sexuality. So I guess there must have been some choice in terms, it's not like a sex ed where they all have to go and then you have to get permission for the parents to let you go, but she's actually teaching a class and she really would love to transform sex education in Nova Scotia and, you know, good luck to her. Um, but, but yeah, that there's so much going on in that, in that question too, about how the, the differences between boys and girls, but I don't think it's an accident. I don't think it's just like, oh, gee, they forgot to talk about the clitoris. I think they, it's done on purpose. Um, that even if you brought up to the you know, powers that be that the curriculum needs to include the clitoris because it's about women's sex, uh, pleasure, there'd be a hesitancy about that because they don't 
which is just bizarre when I think about it. And I can't believe that parents would actually want that for their girls at the same time. Um, when I just had a conversation with someone the other day and it was, it was, I'm trying to think where it was. And it was the same kind of thing. They have a boy and a girl and it was, Oh no, we don't want the girls to be getting it. You know, so it, it has to be challenged all the time. And because it's so deeply rooted, it's just, it'll just keep, it's been replicating for generations. I mean, it's a little better now. We're a little better in terms of uh, education and about accepting that uh, women are more sexually active than they were, but you still get all of these different uh, issues coming up and that the idea, you know, that boys will be boys. I mean, the parents have to, they have to challenge that. And yet they don't because it's so deeply Mm. ingrained in us. Deeply ingrained, deeply ingrained and even like codified by, medical knowledge in some ways. Like I mentioned um, Angel's discussion of the DSM, you know, the one of the, I think most, um, you know, kind of, I don't know, for me at least, striking things in that book is she talks about how in the DSM, only men can have, quote, hypoactive sexual desire disorder. Like only men can uh, have a pathological lack of sex drive. It's just assumed to be a characteristic of women. I guess, yeah, I mean, um, to kind of um, switch gears to some extent and, and think through the ways that the book is talking about the criminalization of sex work, like it seems to me the the overarching, the kind of like, again, like the, the baseline um, problem in the book is this, this or, or goal of the book is, is harm reduction in some sense. Like it's about trying to politicize not sex work, uh, but domination. So over and over again, you come back to this this kind of um, you know hard line around domination in particular, and the question of, of you know I think it's like an open question of whether um, women have agency in these relationships or if they're sort of assumed to not have agency. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a there's a part where you talk about anti anti prostitution activists who have a hard time quote seeing the difference between desiring sex and dominating women. Um, they are one and the same according to many prohibitionists. Um, you say, but by ignoring the experiences of those who have chosen sex work and believe that selling sex is a good experience, we're not able to sort out what makes sex work a better or worse job than minimum wage work, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess like, it, it, and this is something Imani Perry writes about at Patricia Hill Collins and so on, like mm-hmm. that, you know, the, the, and it, I, what I like about it is that it kind of, um, you know, clears, clears away a lot of the noise, the kind of moralistic noise around sex and says that really it's fundamentally about uh, the question of freedom, harm, uh, uh, freedom from harm, violence. Like these are the kinds of baseline questions we need to be asking. Um, you know, I guess to what extent do you think that is, you know, for feminists in particular or, or whether that should be the fundamental question, because anti-prohibitionists would say that their primary concern is violence. But for for you, it seems like they're generalizing violence in a way that is uh, just not true to people's experience. Mm-hmm. Am I kind of reading you correctly? Yeah, no, I, I think that they're not taking into account any kind of context, that they are saying that men, by virtue of being male, so ironically taking even more biological point of view than I am, um, men, by virtue of being male, always and forever have power over women. 
which we know, as you say, in terms of intersectionality is not true, that there are women, whether it's of class or uh, race, have power over men. But in the anti-prostitution view, because they are looking at sex, they believe that men have power over women and that women cannot choose to be in those in, in that position. Even when some of the women I met, and I met their clients as well, a couple of them, it's like, to me, the women had the power. The women had the power to say yes or no to them, um, to negotiate the conditions. Yes, money was taking, uh, was, was, was uh, exchanging hands. But if, if that woman had, if the escort said no, not seeing anymore, um, I think the people that I met, would have, the men would have been devastated. And that made, the, perhaps that made them treat them better. I don't know. Um, and then somebody, an anti-prostitution person might come back and say, well, yeah, but you never know. Um, well, they did say that to me. You know, you could be dealing with a you know, serial killer. Well, yeah, a lot of people could be. It's not just, it's not just about sex work. Um, so there's just a lack of thinking about context. Um, and I also liked what you said earlier about the, the idea about caring. Because from what I could see... Um, the women, not only, I mean, they cared about the men to a certain extent, but obviously it was more about, about more about the money. The men, on the other hand, really did seem to care about them. But even without that, the, those interpersonal um, dilemma in that circumstance, what I what I kept thinking about was, it's about respect and dignity. Um, even, I mean, because you know, sex is messy, and sex is, you know, if it, being viewed sometimes it may not be seen to be. <laughs> all that dignified, but they, the escorts I met were able to work in such a way that they did it with respect and respect for the client. They demanded respect for themselves. And I think that some, and the boundaries they had were much stronger than a lot of people, women I know, um, probably including myself. So I, I just think that, that, that issue about the boundaries too, about what is, if we're not, if we're not teaching we're doing a lot of consent education, obviously, at the university, but it's got to happen way before then. And if, as you're saying, which I totally agree, that um, I, I loved your example of because I don't know that the quarter century um, quarter life crisis, quarter yeah. life, the idea that the the purity culture people um, are having sex but getting nothing out of it, uh, mm. or the women who are not, sorry, who are getting they're not they're not getting anything out of it. They are performing for the men versus the, the woman who did come from that culture is able to actually get pleasure out of it. But if we take pleasure out of the equation in terms of sex education, then that's exactly what we're going to get, a male-focused experience. And then you get into the, those, um, the dilemmas of the badgering. I mean, I, this one, because people don't see it as a problem. That because they perceive men as always after sex, like they're always after sex, and they'll just badger you until you like give in. Like that just needs to be reframed and to say, no, no, if, if the girls actually knew, young women knew that they could have pleasure too, then hopefully they would demand that, you know, um, like the Cardi B thing, I demand, a, I demand to climb. So now, of course, she has a lot more power than a lot of young women, but Sometimes I just think that they don't they don't know any difference. So what they've seen is women performing, women being sexy, 
um, but not really getting anything out of it. And so if that's your frame, then it does become like your pleasure is absolutely irrelevant. It's that male in the head idea um, that Roland talks about. Just it's she interviewed about 120 women, I think, and she said in almost every woman in the first part of their sexual experiences, their pleasure was almost entirely irrelevant. <laughs> Just it did not mean anything. Didn't know anything right. about it, and it was all about him making sure he orgasmed, make sure he had pleasure. Um, theirs pleasure was completely secondary. So it makes them second, second class citizens, even in that regard. Mm. And yeah, that one gets me going because, you know, there are critiques of, of looking at sexuality. Oh, well, that's not important. It's, it's a frivolous issue, but it's not because we may, women may be second class citizens in terms of pay and work, but if they're also in their private sexual lives, second class citizens, that's a huge problem let alone the connection to sexualized violence and, you know, victim blaming and that kind of thing, which I also talk about in the book. Yeah. I mean, I want to again, make the connection to this book, um, which I see as a kind of companion piece for yours tomorrow. Sex will be good again. Um, and this idea that as, as you put it, like sex is messy, it is not just performative. And that is, as Angel puts it in that book, there's no getting away from issues of power. It's just not really possible. You know, like, and even, even as I agree with you that, as you put at the end of your book, you know, we need to ensure radical sexual education for young people, create a culture of female sex positivity and ensure women's bodily autonomy is respected. Um, All of that can't be reduced to consent. Like this is kind of the key insight of Angel's book is that Mm -hmm. um, we place too much of a burden on uh, consent culture, you know, uh, which, which uh, she invokes this idea of confidence culture like a, like a really kind of assertive sexuality. Um, she says the problem with that is that it, it can't really bear the weight of all of our kind of liberatory politics. And she asks, like, um, you know, she, she asks, like, does women's sexual liber- liberation really depend on their sexuality being like men's? Mm-hmm. You know, doesn't that sort of uh, keep desires uncertainty at bay or even like our own vulnerability in these messy, uh, especially early uh, experiences with sex. Like she says, desire is not always there to be known. And that's, and so consent has to be something that is more reciprocal. It has to be more conversational. We have to be open to having these kinds of conversations in real time because desire can kind of, uh, uh, ebb and flow, you know, like Tomlinson in quarter life crisis talks about how, um, you know, consent is not a thing that you as men feel. It is a sound that she makes, (laughs) <laughs> and you need to be responsive to that. Mm. Uh, Beth Stelling in her new HBO comedy special, Girl Daddy, uh, makes the analogy to like a cat and how you shouldn't just like pick a cat up and do whatever you want with it. <laughs> you should sort of wait for the cat to approach you. And if it starts rubbing its head into you really hard, then she jokes, go ahead and fuck that cat. Right? Like, <laughs> you know, like it has to be this procedural and complex thing. We have to accept the complexity of yeah. it, you know, and, and accept that there is no getting away from issues of, of power, yeah. even as we want to center, you know, enthusiastic consent and center pleasure, you know, it doesn't completely, uh, um, you know, displace issues of power, right? Mm-hmm. But I mean, like the other thing, I guess um, there is this line in the book where you talk about how, you know, when a group of people are so dehumanized that no one cares if they're dead or alive, society has a problem. You're talking about 
patriarchal violence in the form of the rise of incels, mm-hmm. right? Like the fact that we are not clearly women, especially trans identified folks, women of color, especially like they are not protected by the system as it is. Uh, last week tonight with John Oliver just did an episode on sex work. And there are these horrifying stories of, you know, sex workers who are raped and who go to the police and then are arrested yeah. themselves. And these, these, you know, these crimes are not prosecuted. Right. So I, I agree, you know, with the def- defunding the police report that's just been released that we, we need to, uh, reallocate resources toward a care infrastructure mm-hmm. that, you know, includes the decriminalization of sex work in order to, you know, reduce mm-hmm. the harm. Um, and also, you know, have a, a social safety net that allows for women to, uh, and women identified people to actually seek out um, support, you know, yeah, outside of police, which clearly, you know, can't really rise to the occasion. Um, but, you know, like the other stories that you're talking about in the, in the book, I think also exposed the the inability of the police to really protect women and especially indigenous women. Right. So the story of Robert Picton, Mm -hmm. the thing I guess I wanted to say about your your kind of account of the Picton case and and others is that you're also pointing out that sometimes those horrifying stories get sort of um, deployed as a way of, um, you know, regulating the discourse almost around sex work. And so reducing sex work to um, just p- purely a condition of vulnerability and violence or purely about like trafficking means that um, you're not really talking about the unequal power relationships that really define like on the ground, mm-hmm. the work, the complex work of of selling sex. Um, so I guess like in terms of, again, like a, this question of visual culture and the, the power of narratives and counter narratives in like uh, influencing the public, public opinion and the public's consciousness of this thing. Um to what extent do you see some of these stereotypes kind of eroding, basically? Like you talk about the stereotypical sex worker, the so-called streetwalker. You talk about, um, you know, the the ways in which if we're prudish about sex, it becomes difficult to imagine people enjoying what's what we think is wrong and dirty um, and so on. Like there's this sense that um, there are like there is potential in visual culture to both reinforce those stereotypes and debunk them. Mm-hmm. You know, are you are you seeing examples of both still yeah. persisting? Um, and and what is, I guess, the ultimate power for you of, you know, especially visual culture in trying to, you know, deconstruct this problem in all mm-hmm. of its nuance? I think that the stereotypes are so deeply rooted that no matter how many times people give a different story, people still believe the story they believe. And so I can't, I can't tell you how many times I've done an op-ed or uh, some kind of article, and I have to say to the editor, please do not put a woman in stockings looking in every time. It, there is some kind of red. I had to do this with the publisher, actually, too. Please do not make the cover of the book a, street, a woman who is on the street looking into a, a window with big boots and you know stockings on and stuff. Because that's, yeah. that's what they go, speaking of visuals, that's what they go, go for. Whereas, um, as I say in the book, and, and whenever, whoever's seen the film, particular students, when you see these women who look, again, so normal, and even me saying that is so ridiculous, because we're, what are we expecting? They're going to look like, like toothless people. They're going to look like they're, <clears throat> um, 
you know, some kind of high end. Whoever, there's a couple of different stereotypes, but these women did not fit any of them. Um, they were middle class, lower middle class women um, who made a, quite a bit of money doing this. They looked like, quote, the girl next door, soccer mom, uh, mom somebody mentioned. So no matter how many people would see that film, it might, it does change minds, but again, I'm not able to broadcast it. So I show it to students. It was at a couple of film festivals. Um, as I say, I think in the book, a couple of people saw it as a rough cut and they were like, Oh my God, this is dangerous because what am I going? Cause they think I'm going to change their point of view on that uh, because these women appear to like it or are not harmed by it. But to go back to one of your, your original points here, the decriminalization and, and the consent to education are the bare minimum. I mean, that's just, we have to decriminalize it in terms of sex work in order to do anything to, in order to help people who are more vulnerable. And if it was decriminalized, then the, the police wouldn't have the same interest in uh, arresting them. And they're not arresting them for sex work, but they're arresting them for um, for being off conditions or because of their drug-seeking behavior, all these other things that go into it. And same thing with consent. That's the bottom, that's the you know, bottom of the barrel. Um, we have to do so much more work in terms of, of going beyond consent to, be, to see sex as a mutually beneficial um, activity, if you will. Mm -hmm. The power issue, though, it then takes me back to the anti-prostitution people because in their view, men always have power um, because of their bigger size. I mean, they really are talking about the, the nature of the sex act and men's generally bigger size. So that even if, as I say, uh, most of the sex workers I met, if not all, <clears throat> had not had bad experiences, all it would take be one. Now, they'd never see the person again. They wouldn't have to see them because most of them dealt with regulars. Um, but they would always be falling back, the anti-sex worker people on that idea that, you know, women are vulnerable. They do believe women are, and, and many women are, right? So that, that's where it's a very difficult, um, very difficult. Um, it's been, you know, I've really enjoyed your book and it's full of like invaluable observations. It's so self-reflexive. And I think like the, the most, the, the biggest selling point in some sense is that it is unwaveringly concerned with justice, with social justice, with reducing harm. Like you're, you know, you just sort of conveyed that, right? Like it is about trying to offer multiple solutions, not some monolithic answer. Um, and so, you know, I, I really appreciate you having this conversation. I think we have to have like longer, more complex conversations about these things. And I also liked the, the idea of the harm reduction. And that's another one where it is so difficult to get certain activists to understand that, whether it's in drug addiction or sex work, that, and that, that comes from a more conservative point of view too, in terms of the drug decriminalization. But even for anti-prostitution activists, that they, they mean well and they want to protect the women, but in not decriminalizing, they are, they're not realizing the, the harm that they're actually doing. And a harm reduction means you take people where they are, you try to assist where you can, but you don't take away their only means of subsistence, basically, without some really good alternative. But again, it's so polarized that 
people just um, do not. And I think that's why we cannot change, we have not yet been able to change the Canadian laws because many feminists are in favor of keeping that asymmetrical model where the, the clients are criminalized but the, the women are not. Right, yeah. I mean, people, you know, I think often the public wants the easy answer, not necessarily the more nuanced answer, you know, and, and morality is obviously a huge, uh, um, you know, yeah. it, it has a huge impact. And I think like, you know, books like yours, the, the books that I've been reading, like I interviewed Ardath Why Not about her book, um, Insurgent Love, mm -hmm. you know, that concept of insurgent love is itself about the sort of radical feminist politics of, as you say, like meeting people where they are. Um, you know, recognizing that things are incredibly complicated, um, that there aren't easy solutions necessarily. Therefore, we have to accept the complexity of all these solutions. With the boundaries that we have, the borders, the prisons, you know, they, they do not allow us to grow in, in a caring direction. They are not protecting people. Um, and so it becomes imperative for us to really radically consider, um, you know, an overhaul at the level of consciousness and our imagination when it comes to sex. Um, so thanks again for, for doing this interview. Thank you for having me, it's been great.